0: Matthew chapter 21, this morning we're going to examine together verses 12 through 17. Let's read God's word. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pause to continue in a spirit of thanks for your word, and it is in a way difficult for us to just be transported back into the amazing scene of your son entering in the last week of his life before the crucifixion. We pray that your spirit would come now and help us that we may know your son and that we may love him and adore him as our king. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, the scene is one of Somewhat chaos. The city, I remind you of Jerusalem at this time in this week in which Passover was celebrated is some estimates um, are that it was around two million people who were coming to the city. The population of Jerusalem, of course, was not normally around that size, but, but people by the tens and hundreds of thousands coming and gathering together together from all around Israel, which of course by this point is, a, is just a small territory of the Roman Empire, but even from around the Roman Empire, those who were God-fearing Jews or those who had come to faith into the God of the Jews were gathering together to honor God. The place where you worshiped God was at the temple. And though by this time Judaism was corrupt, it was really not anything close to what God had given to this people through his servant Moses. By this time, it was a corrupt religion, which had layers upon layers upon layers of man-made tradition. Even though that was the case, and though even though Herod the Great was the one who financed and built this majestic and glorious temple and complex, remember that throughout his life and ministry, the Lord Jesus worshipped his father in that place. He didn't say, oh, well, no, Herod made it, so it's no good. It's not legit. No, he, he went to the temple with his father, Joseph. And, and in his ministry, Jesus went to the temple. And here, even in this text, he acknowledges that though this is the latest version of the temple built by Herod, that it is the temple. It is the house of the Lord. And it is to this place. This is a massive structure. This complex, which has been built up by Herod, is is acres of, of building and of courtyard. And Jerusalem And all the streets are full coming into the city and then in the streets. And there's animals of all kinds, the animals that were bearing the loads. I mean, they didn't have uh, minivans. And so you had your donkey or your camel, right? And you loaded it up, not with a tule rack, but with whatever kind of sack you had. and And then you brought often, if you had means, you brought the animals that were to be offered and to be sacrificed. So the streets are full of throngs of people. And the city has been literally shaken, the text says. Remember, going back at the beginning of chapter 21, the the city, verse 10, was stirred, shaken, almost like an earthquake. There's just rumors and reports going throughout the town. The people have heard that this man coming into town, riding on a colt, a foal of a donkey, colt of a donkey, that this... This man is being hailed as the Messiah, the son of David, as Jesus of Nazareth. And people are asking, who is this? And people are on the fence. And when they're really pressed, they say, well, he's the prophet Jesus. He's been hailed as the son of David. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But they are still not so sure about who he is. They're calling him a mere prophet. And when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the last week of his ministry, before the cross, before the burial and resurrection, remember that the Jews who were looking for the Messiah, like the disciples, they figured that their biggest problem was the Roman Empire, was Caesar, was Pilate, were these Herods, these false pagan rulers who were over them. And so they figured, they reasoned that the Messiah when he came, he would come and deal firstly and primarily with these pagan rulers and give back the nation to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the Jews. But when Jesus comes to town, when the king comes to his city, he goes first not to the fortress where the Roman soldiers are, have their barracks, He goes not first to Pilate's palace. He goes to the temple. I want to give you an outline this morning and before we go any further. First, we learn of the king's concern. Second, this morning, I want to examine the king's command. And thirdly, I want to consider the king's praise, the king's Concern the king's command. And if you want another C, you can do the king's acclamation. But I figured we'd just say praise. But what is the king's concern as he comes to his city, as he comes to Jerusalem? As I said, it's not firstly these pagan foreign rulers. His concern is true worship. True worship. Note it. His first concern is not the government, it's not the political system, it's not even the case of the poor, though we're going to see how he ministers to the poor. The king's first and foremost concern is true worship. His problem is not firstly with foreign occupiers, but with native hypocrites. His concern is that the Father be honored and the humble be welcomed. His concern is that the Scriptures concerning the temple and the worship of God his Father be fulfilled. Jesus' concern is always that Scripture be fulfilled, that, scriptures, that the Scriptures, what was said of him, those are his marching orders given to him by his Father. And I want you to turn with me, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, if you would like to turn to Isaiah 56. This is the passage that Jesus references. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But I'd like to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 56 because it's this whole section that Jesus has in his heart and in his mind. It's this passage that is firing him up. It is this passage, these truths, these prophecies that are pulsing through his veins as he goes through the temple, cleaning it out. Isaiah 56, verse 1 Thus says Yahweh the Lord. Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. By the time... 800 years or so later, after Isaiah's prophecy, the declaration of the Lord, by the time of Jesus' day, the temple had become anything but a house of prayer. It was not a place where the humble and the poor and foreigners could come. It was a racket. It was ruled over basically by a mafia comprised of the Sadducees, of the high priests, and of the scribes. The way it worked was they controlled what could be offered up. And so here you were, and you were required to come and to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And God never meant for his worship to be burdensome. It was always to be a joy for his people, even, even through the times of humbling and contrition and confessing of sin, God was providing for a means for sinful men and women who were humble and contrite and trembled at his word to earnestly and sincerely know that they could come and that there was a way that they could offer up acceptable worship to God and what the essentially the the mob the spiritual mob had done in Jerusalem was shut them off or or ring out make make worship so odious and wring out of them so much money that the trip to Jerusalem became not a joyful thing but a burden because what would happen is you would bring your animal your bull your goat your whatever the appropriate animal that you could afford and you brought that animal and Of course, if the spiritual mob controlled the temple mount and what could be offered, they could easily say to you, no, that animal won't do. Sorry, but if you want to offer up one of your animals, if you want to be acceptable to God, in the court, you'll find some of our approved dealers who will be able to sell you an animal that has already been approved and can be offered up. But of course, it'd be like your experience of going to Fenway. <laughs> I haven't been there in a long time, but it's been years. I'm sure it's still the same way. Uh, you can go out and buy a hot dog, same probably the same kind of hot dog at Market Basket or wherever you shop, and you'll pay whatever, let's say a dollar, and you go outside Fenway, you're going to pay like 25 bucks for a hot dog. Probably. And and this is this is robbery, and it is, and all kinds of layers are are benefiting from that. Probably the Boston mob, in, including along the way, <laughs> along with the Red Sox owners and and everyone. It's it's a it's a racket, right? And, and you when you go to watch, uh, if you happen to be able to go to a Red Sox game, you just you just that's the way it is. We're just gonna. We're going to pay for the tickets. Those are ridiculous. And then we're going to pay $100 for a hot dog. You know, it's just the way it is. And you, you want to do it. But it, it, it almost takes some of the joy out of the experience, at least for the dads. who have got to pay up. And uh, But that's what's happening here. Dad, dad, are, are we going to worship in Jerusalem this year? I mean, the kids think this is great. This is the one big, yeah, yeah, yeah we're going to Jerusalem. And it, it's become a burdensome thing. And Those who are poor and don't have much are being shut out from the worship of God. And this outer court, this large area, the court of Gentiles, was intended to be a place where those who were far away, who seemed naturally far away from God, whether they be Gentiles, foreigners, or eunuchs, But God-fearing men and women had a place where they could come and pray and appeal and seek God and worship him. And that court, which was meant for prayer and for worship of God, had become, well, like Faneuil Hall or or some other market where there's just this din of, of exchanging money and the selling of animals. It's a racket. Worship had become a game, a business, and it shut out the very ones that God had declared that he invited to his house. And so when God's son, the king, the Lord Jesus comes to his city, the first concern he has is with worship. And it's an awesome scene. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. This is this is a big area. This is a court that is many times the size of this building. It is full of people, full of the high priests and the, the most powerful men in the nation spiritually. There's tables with with those who are our salesmen and, and there's animals And this man, Jesus from Nazareth, comes in and with his authority and with his voice starts cleaning house. Which brings us to our second point the king's command. The king's concern, true worship. The king's command, complete. Complete command. This is a this is a scene. This is a this is hundreds, if not thousands, of people filling this area. There's all kinds of noise. There's animals. There's there's long-standing practice. There's tradition. This is the way it's been for as long as everyone can remember it. It's just the way it is. And Jesus comes in and with moments, within moments, starts cleaning out the temple courtyard. He starts turning over tables. He gets these rascals. He sends the spiritual mob fleeing for the hills. He is able to raise his voice. And and if you ever wonder about the nature of our Lord Jesus, so much of of, uh, the culture and and well-meaning people have made our Lord into some effeminate kind of wisp of a man. But you think about it. I don't know how tall Jesus is uh, or was at that time, so uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. However tall a Jewish man our Lord is, he has the lung capacity and the voice and the eyes and the authority and the command to enter into a place like that and to rule over it within a matter of moments. Get these things out of here. This shall be a house of prayer and Jesus walks into this massive courtyard and his authority and his command is such that this place that is a din of business and of spiritual hypocrisy is cleansed within a matter of moments After the chaos of the animals going everywhere, money rolling all over the place, tables overturned, hypocrites and scoundrels fleeing, the spiritual leaders red-faced, incensed because of what's going on, Jesus, through all of this, after all of this, Jesus brings, through his authority, brings to the courtyard exactly what God desires. He makes it within a matter of several moments. I'm sure it took some time to where the blind and lame, verse 14, that is the very most humble and contrite of heart, are able to come in. They weren't welcome before. They couldn't come in. Jesus cleans house. He, he takes the situation, which is referenced, he references from Jeremiah chapter 7. If you want to turn there for just a moment, again, this scene is of the corruption of the temple is prophesied in numerous places in the Old Testament. But in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jesus references Jeremiah when he says, you are making the house a robber's den. God had sent Jeremiah in chapter 7, verse 2, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, their religion had devolved into mere, um, well, ritualism, um, superstition. They assumed that that they were good with God merely because of the building and the location. Rather, God says in verse 5, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever. Verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it. Jesus comes and he clears the robbers out of the den and he makes the temple from a robber's den again into a house of prayer. The king owns his court. This is his house and the house of his father. These are his people who have come to worship him. And this is his worship a worship that comes not through having enough money or having the right connections, but this is his worship for any and for all who come and draw near with a humble, contrite heart. He cleans house. And how can he do this? Just one man, there's no indication his disciples are helping him. How can one man, in a matter of moments, overturn not only tables but generations of corrupt tradition answer he's the king in every sense not merely in title but he as the king possesses divine authority he is the divine king son of god and son of man and in the face of his divine authority even the most hardened thugs are sent running, scattered in fear, for they are in the presence of the Son of God, and they know it, the king's command. So it's a scene of chaos, of, of tables overturned, as I said, money being thrown, <laughs> rolling on the ground, thugs fleeing for their lives, Author- religious mob authorities who are incensed. But in the midst of the din of the chaos, a, a sound begins to swell up. And it's not noticeable at first because, I mean, it's, there's, there's an uproar. It's, it's a raucous scene. But there's a distinct chorus that's starting to well up. And it's, it's not the voice of women. Women weren't allowed in at this point, And it's not the voice of grown men. It's, it's the voices of, of young men. Maybe men around 12 years of age who are like Jesus, just, just beginning their manhood. And, and they are, in a sense, still children. They are babes, if you will but they are there and they are they were brought into the temple courtyard with their father maybe for the first time and they heard maybe on the way into Jerusalem they heard crowds hailing this Jesus as Hosanna the son of David but now these these boys these young men are witnessing this Jesus, and they're standing there watching this scene. I mean, and he's he's standing up to these powerful, evil, corrupt men, and he's clearing them out, and he's declaring that this house will be a house of prayer, and these boys are witnessing it. And one thing that we who are adults need to remember about young people is they can smell hypocrisy from 10 miles away, and they know integrity when they see it. They may not be seasoned with wisdom of years, but children and young people, our teens, know hypocrisy when they see it. And these boys knew that the cor- temple officials were corrupt. They, they could see that this was, this was corrupt scene. They, they know it. They're not dumb. Just like our young people. Mark it as an aside here. They can tell whether we really love God, whether we're earnest or whether we're going through the routines. These boys, these young men, they see Jesus in his zeal and his kingly divine authority and his manly strength. And their hearts are taken. They're stirred. They, They are brought from maybe silence and being, you know, I mean, somewhat what cautious and maybe timid and and these young men these these boys begin doing what the adults won't do acknowledging the truth and praising the king hosanna they say hosanna to the son of david verse 15 these are the children they're they're shouting these, these boys, these young men are taken with Jesus. They see in Jesus their king, their Messiah. They've witnessed firsthand his holy zeal and they are moved and they are persuaded that he is their rightful king. But not all are approving of Jesus' actions, are they? And not everyone approves of the praise coming out of the mouths of these young men. The spiritual godfathers are indignant. They are, again, incensed. They are enraged. They They are absolutely infuriated. No one has ever challenged their authority. No one has ever challenged the system. It's just the way it is. And who are these children to praise this Jesus of Nazareth as if he were seriously the fulfillment of the prophetic promises, as if he were the Messiah? And so they say to Jesus... Do you hear what these children are saying? Verse 16. They, they assume that that Jesus will be ashamed, that Jesus will be embarrassed, that Jesus will will be humble, that he will cower, that he will surely not receive such a glorious act of worship as is coming from the mouths of these children declaring that he is the descendant of David, the very promised one, the Messiah. Have you heard, are you hearing this, Jesus? And Jesus says to them, yes. Can you, can you imagine the shock? He looks right at him. He's not embarrassed. He doesn't qualify their praise he doesn't say oh well they're mistaken he doesn't engage in any kind of false humility he receives their worship yes he says to the religious leaders have you never read and then he quotes from psalm 8 out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself one more time let's turn back to the old testament And just look at Psalm 8 for a moment. Because in each of these references, again, the Lord Jesus is referencing not only the quote, but the context. In his heart and mind is not just merely the phrase, but the whole psalm. And I won't read the whole psalm, but in Psalm 8. Begins with these very familiar and beautiful words. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That's fascinating, isn't it? Um, how is it that praise for the Messiah out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes and children? And of course, these, these young men aren't infants and nursing babes, but Jesus is, Jesus is referencing Psalm 8, verse 2, as, as the principle, that God has ordained praise for him to come out of the mouths of the most weak of the most innocent, of the most looked down upon, the least valuable in that society at the time, children. But isn't it interesting, the question, how can the praise of babes and nursing infants and young men, barely in their teens maybe, how can the praise of these little ones, these? how can the praise of these children in some way be strength? Because, here's the key, think of it. Think of the scene, Jesus overturning the corruption, the evident corruption. Everybody knows it's corrupt. Everybody knows it's rigged. They want to worship God in truth, but you got to go through all the muck and the mire and the system. And these young men, they can see the hypocrisy. They know that these religious leaders don't really love God. And then they see Jesus. And they hear his voice. And they see his holy zeal. And what are they doing when they lead? Lead. They are the ones who start to Lead lead in the temple precincts and say, Hosanna to the son of David. Why is that strength? Because their testimony and the testimony and the praise out of these children, listen, is unassailable. No one can deny it. No one can deny what they're saying is true, isn't true. That's the way it is with kids sometimes. (laughs) You know, we as adults, we, we have these Layers of and it 's appropriate sometimes of politeness and we 're aware of a situation, certain things you say and you don 't say, and then and then some child comes along and just they 're not aware of all the system, and they just tell it like it is, and all the adults are in the room are like, well it 's true <laughs> And no one can do anything. It's unassailable because what the kid just said is true and everybody in the room knows it. What these children are saying is true. And whether they want to acknowledge it or not, everybody knows it. They've just witnessed it, not only through his clearing of the courts, but he's healing the blind. He's healing the lame right before their very eyes. What the children are saying is true and it's an unassailable truth. God has prepared strength and praise out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes for the Messiah. What a a gift from God the Father to the Son. We have to remember that our Lord, as he enters into this week of unparalleled suffering and loneliness, that he is the divine son of God, but that he is also a man, a true man. The mystery of the incarnation, one person, two distinct natures. He doesn't go back and forth between being son of God, son of man. He is, he is very God and very man. And yet those natures are distinct, which means that that pertaining to his human nature as a man he knows what he's going in for but but this is hard this is hard this is a time of suffering he must do what his father has sent him to do but he must do it alone and he will be cursed and he will be mocked and he will be misunderstood and he'll be opposed by the spiritual mob What a gift from the Father to the Son in that moment that out of the mouths of children, Jesus hears the truth. God prepares praise for His Son in this moment, and it's put steel in His spine. What a Father! What a son. This is our King. His concern is true worship. His command is absolute and undeniable. And his acclamation and praise is true altogether. What these young men are saying is true. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of David. He is the Messiah and worthy of worship. So what of us? Well, we want to take a note from our Lord and be reminded that what God seeks, what Jesus says in John, the Gospel of John, that his Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. The church today needs to remember, with all the various concerns that we have, and some of them are good and they need our attention, we ought to look out for the poor and we ought to be, as neighbors, concerned about those around us. We pray for this nation. We pray for those in authority over us. We're concerned about the way of things and laws and so forth. But the evangelical church today needs to remember that what God is Concerned first and foremost about is his true worship and jesus cares very seriously about how he and his father are worshiped and it is to be in spirit and in truth second way of application we might take away this morning is that we like our lord might have courage and zeal for god's house and for god's worship That we might, like our Lord, be willing to be counted fools. But that we would love the house of God and that we would do each one of us our part. Of course, as pastor, as elders, we have a particular responsibility to shepherd the flock, to guard the house, so to speak. But all of us guarding our own hearts, but guarding the church, that, that it be a place of true worship. I invite you, encourage you to join me in praying that God will bring the humble and keep the proud far away. I don't pray that anybody will come to this church. I don't. There's there's a whole category of people I really don't want to come. And they are the self-sufficient, proud, hypocritical, religious type. Until God changes your heart, stay far away. We'd rather have small numbers. God bring to us those who are humble and contrite and broken who maybe don't even know their Bible well, who who maybe look different. It's a reminder to us that we make sure that those who God welcomes to his house and to his worship, that we welcome. But finally this morning, and of course most significantly, most importantly, the Gospel of Matthew, the Holy Spirit who ultimately gave this Gospel desires our hearts to be stirred once again with a view of the glory and the majesty and the command of our King. There's no one like Him. May our hearts be stirred by His courage, by His zeal, by His authority and by His command. And may we, like the children on that day, well, up with praise for Jesus. And if we who are older, if we don't, may God raise up a generation among us who put us to shame and praise Jesus with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and strength. And young people, I want to encourage you in closing, those of you who are younger here, children, kids, teens, young adults, do not take your cue necessarily. Honor your father and mother. Yes, learn from them. But you base your worship and your love and your adoration for the Lord Jesus based not on what others might be doing but you let your worship come from your heart and your mouth based on the truth of who Jesus is alone. And if nobody else wants to raise up their voice and praise Jesus, let it be. You let Jesus have your voice. Let him have your praise. Let him have your worship. May God be praised. Let's close. Jesus, there's no one like you, and and you captivated our hearts this morning. We we weren't there on that momentous day. But through your word and by your spirit, we've been brought to a faint view of it. And, oh, Jesus, find us among those children who are praising you. Where we have become proud or merely externally religious where we've been more concerned with routine and keeping up appearances. Oh, God, forgive us. And make us all this morning like children. May we be your little ones. And like children who adore and love their father, may we love and adore the one who in the book of Isaiah is called the Prince of Peace and Eternal Father. And Lord Jesus, in closing, we, we praise you that you're like a father to us and your love and your care. Where we are becoming proud, oh Lord, humble us and make us be those people that you want us to be. Lifting up your name in truth and sincerity, we ask. Amen.